Thanks, Bill. Howdy, High Point. How are you guys doing? You ready to rock? Awesome. Okay. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, that you know that we're doing a series on the book of Colossians. It's a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to some people in a city called Colossae, hence the creative title, Colossians. And um, we've called the, the series On Things Above because um, for two reasons. One, we want you to understand that the external notion oftentimes that our secular neighbors have that people who are religious are so heavenly minded they're no earthly good is false. In fact, what Jesus taught was that in order to be truly earthly good, you have to be heavenly minded. That is, that it is, it is um, just as bigoted to say every religious person has their head in the clouds as it is to say every secular person has their head in the sand. There's lots of little slogans we like to use to attack people who aren't like us. But when it came to what Jesus taught, Jesus was very clear that in order to be what we were meant to be, we have to be heavenly minded in order to be of real earthly good. So over the last four or five weeks, I've argued for these first four points. One is to be your optimal and intended earthly good, you have to be heavenly minded. There's a certain amount of common grace that allows anybody, even if they don't follow Jesus, because they they do have God's image in them, they will naturally do some things that really are of some kind of earthly good through common grace. But in order to be your optimal earthly good and to be your intended earthly good, you have to be heavenly minded. Biblically, heavenly-mindedness is not thinking about heaven. Biblically speaking, heavenly-mindedness is to be Christ-minded. That doesn't mean you can't think about heaven or want to go there or try to imagine it, though that may be a fool's errand. It's just that's not what heavenly-mindedness is. In fact, heavenly-minded isn't even a biblical phrase. It's one we've created that gets at some of the ways in which the Bible talks about being Christ-minded. Now, I know that this may seem like simple logic, but it does need to be said that in order to be Christ-minded, we have to have the mind of Christ, right? If we're going to be Christ-minded, we have to have the mind of Christ. We need to understand what it means to be mindful of Christ, to be mentally, emotionally, personally related to what Jesus is all about. And to have the mind of Christ, that is not something that happens immediately. It's not something that just happens. It's something that has to be developed. In Christian faith, there are a lot of things that Scripture teaches happen immediately when you come to faith in Christ. When you you invite Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to live in you in the person of the Holy Spirit, to change you, to be your new leader, all, whatever metaphor you want to use of being saved, there are a lot of things that happen immediately. You're made right with God immediately, what what we call, what the Bible calls justification. You're set right morally, totally with God so that you can enter into a relationship with him. You're united with Christ and with God through the Holy Spirit. You have, a, you have a connection with God. And there's a number of things that I could go through. One of the things that is not an immediate event is that we, in character, in thinking and in life, become Christ-minded. To have the mind of Christ, that has to be developed in us. Romans 12, 1 and 2 refers to it as um, the renew- being transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's stated like it's a process because it is a process. So then the question is, you get to this sermon, and if you're tracking through the logic of that, the question is, well, how do you do that? Right, that sounds good. That is relatively clear. If you read the first two chapters of Colossians, that idea kind of comes across. The question then is, how do you do that? And this passage makes basically two arguments. One, the mind of Christ is developed by seeking out and thinking about Christ and the things of Christ. And two, 
it always includes the act of killing of sin and the embracing of life in Christ. Or to use the metaphor of the passage, the taking off of the old self and the putting on of new life in Christ. Okay? So I want to talk about those two things this morning. Or you could just get those two things from verse 2, right? Set your mind on things above, and then don't set your mind on earthly things. The problem is, is that we're not altogether clear on what those two phrases mean, earth, things above and earthly things. And until those two things are kind of clear, it's going to be really hard how to set ourselves and think things through properly. So the first thing is, is that we, we need to seek out and set our minds on things above. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week because the passage right after this one talks about the putting on of the new life. But we can't have the mind of Christ without doing this. We have to seek out and set our minds on things above. Like it says in that verse. Now the NIV translates it, set your hearts on things above and set your minds on things above because that preaches. The word heart actually isn't in the original text. It just says, seek out the things above and think about things above. That's still pretty clear though. Right? So the two questions that emerge from this are, what does things above actually refer to? Because that's a spatial metaphor that's clearly directed at something that is spiritual and moral, right? So how do you, how do you bridge the logical gap there? So it's things that are above, but what things? And then how do you seek, how do we seek and set our minds on those? So the first thing, hopefully, to clarify is to say what it's not. Things above are not, or to set our minds on things above, what is that? It's not an untethered or impractical mysticism. It's not loopy spirituality. And the reason why that ought to be clear to us is because just a few verses before this in chapter 2, Paul actually directly attacks and kind of makes fun of untethered, ephemeral, impractical mysticism when he says this. He says, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head. So not only does he, is he saying that sort of wacky mysticism is falsely humble, and it worships something really other than God, and it usually gets derailed in these sort of little um, kind of spiritual experience-based sort of speculative kind of things that the Bible doesn't actually directly talk about, but those people start talking like those are the most important things. Not only that, but he sort of makes fun of it by saying their unspiritual mind, which is a direct attack saying that sort of ephemeral mysticism, that almost sounds like by definition that's what spiritual is. But spiritual in Christianity means what? Spirituality in Christianity does not mean you acting psychologically somehow mystically. Spirituality in Christianity means two things. It means of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you close your eyes and that you imagine something. It doesn't mean that you have some kind of psychological event. What it means is that something happens that is of the Holy Spirit. And the most practical thing of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit does is— this is participatory. It's a four-letter word. It starts with L and has V in it. It's love, right? Which is not particularly mystical, except for in certain manifestations of it, right? It's, it's practical stuff. You do it with your hands, your body. You, you live it out. You do it. That's Christian spirituality. And so Paul says when people do this, they're, uns they're being completely unspiritual from a Christian perspective. They're un but then he says they're unspiritual. Get it? Mind puffs them up with idle notions— They've lost connection with the head. So he's saying what's going on in their head isn't connected to the real head who is 
Jesus. Right? So whatever setting our minds on things above means, it does not mean a wacky, untethered, speculative supramysticism. It doesn't mean that. Now that does not mean Christianity doesn't have mysticism. Because there are things that are immaterial going on in here and this and the Holy Spirit speaking into our conscience and there's all kinds of stuff that's kind of still happens in our relationship with God that's not concrete and in that sense it's mystical and, in that, and those things are entirely biblical. It's not to say it's not mystical at all. It's just to say when you set your mind on things above, that doesn't necessarily mean you get increasingly ephemeral in your mysticism. It means you, it means you embrace that which is of the Holy Spirit more deeply. When you look at where this passage comes, it comes right after chapter 2. And what is chapter 2 all about? Chapter 2 is all about Jesus, and it's all about what Jesus has done, what we call the gospel or the good news. And so when you track through this, what does it say? It says, um, if you've been co-raised with Christ, then seek out the things above. So you see emphasis, Christ and what? The fact that just like Christ was dead and raised from the dead, you've been dead and raised from the dead together. You're, you're together in a death and resurrection. If that's true, then what? What would you seek, right? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That is, Je Jesus is in the presence of the authority of God himself. He is there and he's seated. His work is done. He's completed something, and we can think about that and focus on that, right? Our life is hidden with Christ in God, it says. And then it says, Christ, who is himself your life. That is, you had a kind of life that wasn't in Christ. Another spatial metaphor that you've got to sort out, right? In Christ, but now Christ is your life. And then it says, when he appears, and then it speaks about our glorification. And glorification is not the same thing as going to heaven. Heaven, in that sense, is environmental. Like, you, th you can think about heaven, you can be like, okay, it's going to be nice there, it won't be as hot as Wisconsin in August, and there will be breezes, and all of, you know, all of the melons, mangoes, and strawberries will be in season, and properly ripe, and it'll be—that's like, kind of like— it, it's an environmental idea, and that's part of glorification, but it's not in some ways morally the best part, right? Glorification includes you won't want to sin anymore. The war will be over. The war for who you really are, what you're really going to be, who you're really going to become, whether you're moving towards, towards being more like Christ or moving more towards internal damnation. I mean, like, all of the struggle of all of that, all the things in life that are radically confusing, all the things about us that are disordered and broken, diseases and illness, and all that kind of stuff that makes life the way it is, it's, that's all gone. We will be in some sense more like Christ than we've ever been. All of those things are wrapped up in this concept of glorification. It includes the environment of heaven, but it is certainly not limited to it. And the environment of heaven may very well not be the most interesting thing. Sometimes I wonder if we're even going to notice how nice heaven is for all the other more interesting things about it. So what that means is that if we're going to set our minds on things above, which is Christ and the gospel, what that means is all the things he just said in chapters 1 and 2, which we talked about last week, right? The five things in chapter 2 was our, our union with Christ, that we are one with him in some kind of meaningly, meaningfully, literally mystical way through faith. 
Sanctification, that we are actually free to not sin. Its ability to dominate us is broken, and though sin—this is the words of John Wesley—though sin remains, it doesn't reign. It can't rule us. We can beat it. Regeneration, that we were dead and we were made alive again. There is a spiritual life in us we did not have. How should that affect you, right? Or justification, that we're set right with God, and in that, everything that wanted to kill us, sin, death, hell, the world, it was all not only just beaten by Christ, but so badly beaten that it was humiliated by Christ. Especially the, the demonic capacity to drag us away from Christ. It's not just that it doesn't have to take us. Christ humiliated the powers of darkness in the cross. So then the next question becomes then, okay, so that's what Christ has done in setting our minds on things above and seeking things above is to focus on those things. But those are still, that's what Christ has done. How do we do it? Right? And the picture that Paul uses as you get further in chapter 3 is, is an image of taking off and putting on. So he uses this word that's for taking off a garment and throwing it away. Right? It's used when Saul is walking and people take off their garments and throw them on the ground for him to walk over. It's kind of like you come, you come in from one of those like half-wet, really cold February snowball fights, and you're kind of achy, and your clothes are soaking wet, and you take that off to get in the steaming shower. It's kind of like that. You take it off, and you throw it down, and you go on to something completely different that you put on. But before that, so that we don't get caught up in kind of the nicety of a— what are we going to wear mentality? He starts with a different one, and that is execution, killing. And he says, you need to kill whatever remains of your earthly nature. Right? It says, so we've got to kill our seeking of and our mindset on earthly things, right? If what we're supposed to do is to seek out and have our minds set on things above, then what he's saying here is that the opposite is true as well. We have to stop setting our minds on and stop seeking out that which, that which is f- the focus of our earthly nature, which actually brings up a couple of questions. The first being, what does earthly nature mean in that context? Because what a lot of Christians— can come to believe, and what most of our secular neighbors think we mean by that is something about it's our physical experience that's the problem. And earthly things in this context does not refer to our physical experience. In fact, most of the heresies of the early Christian church, most of the people that the church in the first 200 years kicked out were people that believed that. That believed that there was essentially two different— there was spirit and there was physical, and neither the twain shall meet. Physical is bad, spirit is good, and Christianity had this entirely scandalous doctrine called the resurrection of the body. That the end was not going to be ephemeral beings that maintain their psychology and their thinking that play ephemeral harps on ephemeral clouds, but that God in ultimate redemption would save and remake and redeem all bodies and his physical creation, which belongs to him, which he created. When God got done creating the earth and the people on it and the animals, he declared what he thought of it. And if you read the book of of Genesis, it says it was good, it was good, it was good. And at the end, when it's all done, he says, it's very good. And so, and if the heart of the ethic of Christian faith is love, what do you have to have to love somebody? Right? 
The Apostle John in 1 John says, brothers and sisters, let's not love only with tongue and in word, but in action and in truth. Meaning, if we're truly going to love somebody, we are going to do something, and the only way we know how to do something is with our body. Now, if you look in this context and you read it sympathetically, you actually want to know what it means, rather than just accuse Christians of stupidity, is it's th- these are the things that we know are true about it. It is the opposite of things above, and the things above are the things of Christ and the things of the gospel. Therefore, earthly things are the opposite of that in this context, which would be things that are not of Christ and that are against the gospel. What Christ has done. It also doesn't just produce physical things. It produces vices and sins. Like, Paul doesn't say, well, you know, now that you're a Christian, you've got to put to death the things of the body, which means, you, you know, you've got to put away sexual immorality and greed and outbursts of anger and your desire for chocolate and frozen yogurt and liking rain and Right? He doesn't say that. He, the things he talks about are specifically vices and sins, not just embodied existence. Right? He says that it provokes the wrath of God, and about the physical world, generally, God said that it was very good. It is not the fact that there is something physical that bothers God. It is the fact that the something physical he created for a purpose is being used for another purpose by rebellious people, and that's what bothers him. It produces idolatry, and the remedy isn't becoming less physical. The remedy is using our physical body for what it's for. And not for what it's not for. So you might define it this way, based on that, that what it's what's being referred to as the body or the earthly things in this context is what is earthly in you is that which produces sin, provokes God's anger, and that is idolatry. That's what he's referring to. There's a passage in um, John Owen's book. If 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 there was a list of books I could assign to every Christian. And it was just simply based on the books I wanted to assign because I thought they were the best rather than books that you would actually read. I would assign this book, okay? It's one of the best Christian books you can possibly read, but it's like a page an hour for most people, which is, well, for the first 40 pages till you learn to read it. But this is what he says about the body, which is the way Paul uses the same idea in Romans 8. So what he calls earthly things here, he calls the same things the body in Romans 8. We'll look at that verse in just a second. He says this, The body then here is taken for that corruption and depravity of our natures, where the body in a great part is the seat and instrument, the very members of the body being made servants to unrighteousness thereby. Okay, I know that sounds kind of Puritan, but let me explain what he means by that. You see, Paul constantly calls what the, new, what, what the NIV translates the sinful nature, his word is the flesh. Now, I just got done saying God doesn't look at the physical bodies, what's wrong with us, right? But yet, Paul continually uses this concept, the flesh. Now, the way I just described it, you might think that has nothing to do then with our physical bodies. The problem is that it does. Because all of our capacities can get kind of out of whack, and many of our desires and, and interbodily actions are rooted in our instincts and our hormones and all kinds of other things related to our physical body. And so our fleshliness, our embodiedness, creates an enormous opportunity to get us out of whack. Because we have, there's a lot of stuff going on in our bodies. There's a lot of ways hormones and brain waves and blah, blah, blahs are all working together. And if they're not all working together right, little things can whack, make it all out of whack, right? I mean, there's all kinds of people probably in this room who have either annoying or debilitating 
problems with their body because some little thing is out of whack. It's not even very big. But it makes a significant difference because it takes 19 different things and gets them all kind of crossways with each other. What Owen is saying is one of the reasons why we can, it can refer to earthly things or of the, of the body and that be related to sin, even though our bodies are a good creation of God, is because that which makes up our bodily faculties and our homeworks are, are easy handmaidens to get our passions and our desires out of whack. And because of that, our sinful nature has a bodily rootedness because our our bodies, in a sense, and the way they function are suckers for the epithumias, the, the passions that are over passions. They're the, the uses of our internal drives that get out of whack. And so, a lot of our sins are normal human drives that exist for a very specific purpose that get out of whack and misdirected so that it produces big problems. Think about the examples he uses, right? What are the examples he uses? Sexual immorality is the main focus of the first list, right? Rage, which is the focus of the second list, and then greed and lying, right? All three of those things have a very specific bodily drive behind them that's meant to lead to something good that can easily be moved aside. And once it gets moved aside, all the potency of that passion is now running in that direction, right? So, I mean, I joke with people. I remember sometimes I talk with like 20-something Christians because, you know, we get married when we're 67 now. And, you know, <laughs> s- sexual desire starts younger than that, it turns out. And so there's—we're getting this prolonged period where the Bible commands celibacy. And yet they're like, this is crazy. And, and I've had people ask me, like, you know, why is the sexual desire so strong if God wants us, you know, to wait? And, and I said—and my response to them is— You don't see this in your present life stage, but if it wasn't like that, you wouldn't exist. (laughs) When you have a child and you experience the disruption (laughs) that they create, the income they devour, the well-being that they sap, the advanced age that they incur upon you, and you recognize the only thing that commends a child is their actual existence, that you as a parent could come to love them, and before you're there, you don't exist. That's just an idea. No one would have children. It's insane. And if there wasn't a desire in us so potent as to get us to have kids anyway— there would be no humans. So you can get mad at God, but it's the only reason you're here to get mad at God. That's all I'm saying. Right? Rage is similar. The world is a violent place. People want to kill you and take from you and oppress you. There are many people who live according to the flesh, and what we do to each other is not good. And you were meant to have a place that you could go to. You were meant to have faculties of strength by which you could exert force and defend those you are supposed to defend. Yourself, others, and so on. Most of the history of humanity existed before firearms. And so it's not just the ability to do that. It's the ability to take a rock and defend yourself. A sword. And there's, there's something that is part of good humanity. 
A person who is properly engaged in being human has the capacity to kill. There is a place in us, and that is met. There's a faculty of strength and the capacity for defensive and engaged violence in its right moral category that we are meant to have. It is a very powerful thing. And when you connect that, you plug that into selfishness, and you let that thing go, that faculty that God created, you let that go and you plug that into selfishness, you get rage. And anger, and you get men hitting their wives, and frankly, in church work, I'll just tell you a lot of wives hitting their husbands, and so on. You just get people doing anything they want, and when you add that to this, the drive for ambition and self-preservation, and you plug that into selfishness, what do you get? You'll do anything to get what you want, greed, lying, and so on, which is idolatry. It is the worship of another God, the God of the self, either through the driving force and misuse of one of these desires that tells you it will get you what you want, whether it's sexual drive, the rage drive, or the ambition drive. But it, it uses the drives of your body. And therefore, though the body is good, sin has a rootedness in the body, hence the term the flesh. It is the thing that connects in, in a bodily sense, but is connected to idolatry and sin. Okay, I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. So then the question then is, the next question is, okay, if you have to kill that, what is it going to take? Th there is a time to clarify things, and there is a time to say, are you prepared to do it? Do you know and are you serious and sober-minded about what it's going to take? Too many people get going on things and they think they're going to do something and they don't think about what it's going to take. And you really just usually get failure when you do that. The first realization of what it's going to take is you have to accept the fact that sin— I don't mean sins, but sin in this rooted sense of the flesh has to be killed and cast off. You have to kill it. That's your job. That's part of the production of the mind of Christ. That's part of what God has empowered us to do, but not, has not done for us. Because we're meant to be formed into a kind of character, and this work is necessary for the formation of that character. In Romans 8, 13, Paul says it this way. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now he's, remember, he's speaking to people who are in the church at Rome. These are all people who consider themselves Christians, and that word die does not refer mainly to physical death. That means death of all kinds of life. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. Now notice, he's referring to people who believe that they're Christians because he says, in order to put it to death, you have to do it by the Spirit. There are spiritual resources from God himself, and that's why Christians believe that not sinning is spiritual. It's not prudery. 
doing what we were made for, doing what we were intended for, living our optimal and intended earthly good by not sinning and engaging in righteousness, that may not look spiritual to most people. It may look like moralism or being too moral or too interested in do's and don'ts. In Christianity, that's called spirituality. It's called when I engage in doing what is good, true, and beautiful. It doesn't have to be ephemeral. It's spiritual because it is of or by the Spirit. John Owen says it this way. He says, the vigor—now this first sentence is one of the most important in his whole treatise, and it's—I think it's true. The vigor, the power, and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification, that is, the putting to death of, the deeds of the flesh. Listen to that one more time. The vigor, the power, and the comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. If you do not recognize, sin has to be killed. And if you do not engage in doing so, you should not expect your spiritual life to be full of vigor, power, and comfort. He says, do you mortify? Do you kill it? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Desist not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. A sentence not only fit for Twitter, but actually fit for our memory. You're being dead with Christ virtually. You're being raised with him will not excuse you from this work. You see what he's saying? What's already been done in the gospel when God supernaturally regenerated you, that will not excuse you from this. That only makes you capable of this. Oops, wrong button. The next thing it's going to take is that you need to recognize that sin inside of you, the flesh as it's called, the sinful condition, is a very cunning adversary. You need to quit underestimating sin in you. Owen says, when sin leaves us alone, we can live, leave sin alone. But sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still. So ought our contrivances against it to be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even where there is the least suspicion. One way to think about this is that your sinful nature is as clever as you are because it wields your mind. It is as impassioned as you are because it wields your passions. It is as physically powerful as you are because it wields your physical power. The same faculties that you wield in the divine nature, the flesh wields against it. it both, both what you are in Christ and what sin is seeking to drag you into are both part of you and are using the same faculties. So if you are relying on your cleverness to beat sin, the problem is sin is using your cleverness to beat you. And the problem is, is that it is more aware of you than you are of it, and so it has that advantage. Think about it this way. Imagine you're watching an actually good Batman movie, okay? And it's getting towards the end, but, and there's been all this stuff happening, but you haven't seen the real villain yet, right? Batman's beat a couple of villains, and now you're about—you know you're about—he's in this abandoned building. There's probably some kind of surprise. You know that the moment has come where the bad guy is going to come out, Right? And so he walks in, and the bag comes out, and it's like this big monster thing, right? 
And you're kind of, what's, your, what's your response to that? You're kind of like, oh, another crappy Batman movie, right? That would, that would be your, I mean, you're like, Batman always fights people bigger than him, but he always wins. He's Batman, right? The answer is, yes, Nick, Batman is awesome. <laughs> right? Now, imagine something else happening. Instead of like the big, strong guy comes out, Batman walks out. Like, it's a doppelganger. It's an exact replica. Looks, has all the same gear, looks identical. It's like Batman walks up, and it's Batman. And you're like, I mean, your response would be different. Right? Now, you might think that's a cliche or something from Conan the Barbarian or something, but the point is, is that you're like, well, can Batman beat Batman? I mean, he's got all the same gear as Batman. He's got all the same genetics as Batman. He's got all the same strength as Batman, same quickness as Batman. And this guy, this Batman's probably been studying this Batman, but this Batman hasn't been studying that Batman. So what's going to happen? We don't really know. (laughs) Right? Other than looking at the projected prophets and therefore whether or not they're going to make another one. (laughs) The point is, is that the second Batman is a lot more eerie. You just don't even know if he can beat him. That's what the flesh is like. Because it wields you, you, the only resource you have that is clearly bigger and better to wield against sin than what sin has to wield against you is the Spirit of God. The message of the gospel, the truths that God tells you in the scriptures, and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Because otherwise, it's Batman against Batman, and that Batman has been studying the you Batman, and you are in trouble, the body armor notwithstanding. So quit being, being naive. The enemy we face is extraordinarily cunning because it is us. The third thing is that it is a brutal responsibility. Most of us have not sufficiently developed our capacity for brutality. In fact, we can't even envision it, we can't even imagine it, and that's one of the things that's wrong with us. Now, I realize this is a little controversial. Owen says it this way, and I'm sorry, but I picked, this picture's a little bit like Lord of the Flies for me, but he that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he stops striking before the other ceases living, does but half his work. Look, I picture stone in hand, like, right? When I was in, um, when I was in the South, that's where I learned how to hunt. And, um, in the South, we, we would refer to killing an animal as killing an animal. Right? So you, you'd go to church, you'd be like, how's deer season going for you? And be like, well, I killed this nine point, right? And we'd pull out the smartphone, there, you know, there's the nine point, oh, that's, it's nine, you know, and people, I killed this deer, and I killed that elk, and I killed that duck, and we killed the, killed the, killed the, kill, right? And then you come to the north, you know what they say in the north? When they take, when they take an animal, do you know what people say up here? They say, I harvested an animal. I harvested, I harvested a deer this season, right? And I'm like, was it a cucumber? I mean, like, <laughs> you har- And I, I get the whole, like, deer ranches, right? Where they, like, 
grow crops just for deer to eat, and the deer walk the exact same path every day, and then they pet them most days, you know, the people who run it, and then one day they put a hunter in and say, no, I'm going to go to pet it, and then you shoot it right when I do that, and then you'll have harvested your deer, right? Like, like I get that that's what hunting is becoming for a lot of people who have money, and, I, and it's fine. It's a free country, okay? But you didn't harvest a deer. You killed it. Okay? Like, I remember the first deer I ever killed. Like, when I went to the South, I had never killed a deer, and um, I went on this deer hunt, and I was in this stand, and it was, it was close quarters. So it wasn't like 300 yards away. It was like this, this, these five deer came out. They were having a nice morning. You know, they came out in this area. They were eating some grass, right? And I'm, they don't know I'm there. And so I get my gun up, right? And it's an easy shot. And I'm looking at this deer who's just enjoying herself. Okay? And there's this moment where I'm, you know, I'm about to pull the trigger, and this thought comes in, do I really want to do this? Because I know what's—when I pull the trigger, I know what's going to happen. Physics is going to take its course. And I'm going to send burning hot lead through the vascular system of this poor animal. Like, it's going to tear apart her ribs. It's going to wreck her heart. It's going to make some of her systems jelly. And she is just going to—right? Like, are you starting to get ready to throw up yet? Last service, there was a woman over here. She said, stop. Just please, stop. Because she couldn't even hear me, and this is probably a lot of us, have a hard time just listening to me verbally explain killing something. Okay? We are so squeamish, so weak mentally in our ability to use our God-given brutality for what it was intended for. We have become a people who can't teach people how to harness that properly. And so we have some people who become simply weak and other people who embrace it, but embrace it with the flesh. And it goes all over the place and hurts all kinds of people. Nobody has the guts to stand up to those people. So you have to do it all through a legal system. Legal systems can't produce justice because nobody was there. And you get this enormous cultural mess that nobody can handle. Because we're not weak enough to say, hey, back off of her. Right? I remember having a seminary professor who went to school in um, Vancouver at McGill. And he was walking home one night. And he, he was walking by an alley. He saw a woman being raped. Right? And I guarantee you, 95% of the seminary students that were listening to him tell that story were thinking, what would you do in such a situation? If somebody asked, what did you do? He's like, I went, I beat the guy up. Like I beat him to a bloody pulp, dragged him out of the thing, got the woman up, called the police, he went to jail, right? This is my New Testament professor. That's what you're supposed to do, right? I mean, that's— we don't have—we don't understand that. Um, one of the best novels I've ever read, C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, Aruel is this woman who is the queen of a place called Gloam, and there's this other nation coming to attack them. And she doesn't want to lead her people out to war. She doesn't want the casualties of both sides and the destroyed families and so on. And she thinks that since she's a woman, she will um, challenge the king to one-on-one -on -one combat. And he'll have to accept it, otherwise he'll look like a coward, right? And um, she's been studying fighting for years, but she actually hasn't killed anyone, right? Because she's the queen, to, right? So they send the thing, the, the king accepts, and he's like, you know, I won't kill her with my sword, I'll beat her, and then I'll, you will hang her with a rope, because she's a woman, and blah, 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 right? And so they, they get ready to, to go out there, and Bardia, who is the general in charge of the military affairs, who's trained her all these years, who's considerably older than her, he says, wait, come with me first. So right before they go out, he takes her to the butcher, and they walk into this room, and there's this live pig, 
right? He pulls out her sword and puts it in her hand, and he says, drive your sword through that living animal. And she's like, what do you mean? He says, I have trained too many men for too many years to be great warriors, only for that first moment before their first kill, for them to hesitate just long enough to be killed themselves. I have to know that when that moment comes, you will plunge this sword into this man. And so before she walks out there, she has to take the sword, and she has to, she has to kill this pig, like, up close and personal, right? And then she goes out to fight this guy. So when that moment comes, she comes down on his femoral artery so deep that nobody could sew it shut. When Paul says, you have to kill it, he means he's talking about an age before guns when this kind of thing was up close and personal. It had a sense of brutality to it. it there was, you had to go to a place that you were not used to going to. The best example of this in any literature I've ever read is in Paralandra, Lewis's novel. If you haven't read it, I'd really encourage you. There is, a, there is like 50 pages Ransom is the protagonist. He goes to Venus. Venus is pre-fall. And this guy Weston shows up, who's the Satan figure. And he's on these islands where nothing has ever died. Everything is beautiful. He, Ransom walks around, and it's nothing but just beauty and harmony. And he's walking out, and he comes to this lizard that's had its neck broken, and it's slowly dying. And he starts walking along. There's this, like, line of dead things. And here's Weston just laughing and killing things on this unspoiled, untouched planet. And you kind of sit there when you're reading this, and you're kind of like, what's Ransom going to do? Like, how, there's no jail. There's no legal system. There's no, like, what's he, right? And it's, you know, it's C.S. Lewis is some British guy. I mean, like, what possibly is the main character going to do? And what happens is Ransom realizes he's got to kill Weston with his bare hands. He doesn't have any weapons. He has to kill— And there's this prolonged scene of him catching Weston and strangling him, Weston begging for his life, them fighting, them hitting each other with stuff, them finding something to stab into each other's flesh, Weston trying to get away, Ransom chasing him, finally, and then killing him, and then for some reason he's still alive and he kills him again, and for some reason he's not totally dead and he kills him again. It's just the most brutal Lord of the Flies. And it's—it is, in one sense— a beautiful description in that it's, it's horribly graphic of the reality of this is what it takes. This was a man who had lived through two world wars. This is what it takes. There's a certain level of brutality in the responsibility you have to kill the flesh. You have to do it every day. You have to do it with brutality. You have to be able to check into that place and use it for what it's for, and then have the restraint and knowledge to never use it for what it's not for. And if you just say, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna box up, I'm gonna wall off that part of me, and I'm just not gonna be a brutal person, you may not brutalize somebody you shouldn't. That's great. But you'll be too weak to protect anyone and too weak to live. And I don't believe that's God's intention. Even pacifists have to be strong. And then the last thing is that this is an intractable conflict. You can't surrender, and there will never be peace. You can't surrender, and there will never be peace. This is an intractable conflict. Owen says it this way. He says, to be killing sin is not to succeed in utterly killing it, rooting it out, and destroying it permanently. That it should have no more hold or residence in our hearts. It is true 
that this total destruction is the thing aimed at, but it is not in this life to be accomplished. And yet, no one really fights sin who does not aim at, intend at, and desire its utter destruction. That it should leave no root nor fruit in the heart of life. There's this news story up recently, and it's the picture of Netanyahu is really funny because he's just like, he's got the most disgusted look on his face, shaking Senator um, Ambassador Kerry's hand. And um, what, what, it, the, what the article is about is that there was a 72-hour ceasefire. Before the 72-hour ceasefire, Netanyahu called up Kerry in our State Department and said, Hamas isn't going to do it. It's just a ruse. I mean, this isn't, like, they're just going to cease fire until they find an opportunity in a moment of weakness, and then they're going to try to take somebody hostage. That's what they do. This is not going to work. And our State Department was like, it's a ceasefire. That's what we want. It's peace, right? Let's, let's get a ceasefire, and then let's see if we can negotiate for more peace. I mean, that, aren't we trying to get peace, right? And Netanyahu's like, sure, but this isn't, this isn't real, right? Now, what you've got to understand about this, if you don't already know it, is that Netanyahu— was the lead tank general in the Six-Day War. Okay, most people don't know that. And there was a day when, like the final scene of Independence Day, Netanyahu got up on a tank in his earlier, much earlier years, and got a microphone and said, we are the only nation in the world that cannot lose a single battle. There are 12 miles between us and our women and children. This is the only battle we will fight. We are greatly outgunned. If you have one tank, you keep moving. If you have one jeep, you, if you have one bullet, you keep moving. And I will see you tomorrow night in Cairo, if there are any of us left. The tank of—now listen, most people know in the Six-Day War that the air offensive was a huge success. The tank offensive of the Six-Day War was incredibly bloody. I, these guys saw people burned alive in front of them, blown up by mines. They were picking up limbs, and it was— beyond brutal. But they got to Cairo, and it ended. And that, that, that's his background. He knows who he fights. He just knows. He's, he, he's, 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 he's cynical, and Senator Kerry's experience is slightly different than his. Now, as much as I, I personally am not a huge Kerry fan, okay? I'll just be honest with you, okay? But he's been to war, and I haven't, Okay? He's been to war, and I haven't. And, but he, I don't think he fully appreciates the intractability of this conflict. And now, whatever you think about who's right, and right, I don't really care. This is just an illustration. I'm not trying to convince you to be pro or against anything. You should be pro-Israel and pro-Palestine. We should want the best for both people. We should do whatever we can morally and realistically to do that. So I that's not what this is about. The point is the illustration, and here's what this illustrates. Th this fight you have with sin is not going to end. There's no end date for this that you know. There's no like, oh, you do it, it's done. It's not like drywalling the basement, okay? You don't complete this, okay? You are going to fight this forever. Now, Owen says a couple paragraph la paragraphs later, he says, it's not that you can't have success. It's not that you can't enjoy pushing it back a very long way, right? It's, it's similar. He uses the metaphor of weeds, right? Like, you can, like, if you're a good gardener, you go out and you eradicate every weed you can, and you can enjoy a weedless, beautiful garden, but they're, they're coming back, right? And if you don't keep weeding, why do you have to weed, weed the first five weeds that come up? 
Because if you don't, they increase exponentially, right? They, they gain momentum. They come back so fast. And that's why you have to kill it all the way down, and you have to give it nothing to grow on, right? There was this place at Beaver Camp where I was a, a counselor where um, it was, there was a waterfall, and there was water, and there was this rock that went up, and all the kids used to be so amazed that there were a few of us counselors that could climb it because it looked like it was straight up. But there was a foothold underwater, that most of the kids didn't know about. And if you got into that foothold, you could kind of get on this one thing, and then you could get your hand over here and come over, and then you could get this, and then there was this little slope, and if you dried your hands out, you could get just enough torsion to get up and come over and climb over the thing. You had to be about five, seven to pull it off. There's this verse in Ephesians chapter five where Paul says, don't give Satan a foothold. Just don't, don't leave anything this, this is why you, can, you cannot play around with sin. You have to lord of the flies, bash in its skull. If you aren't ready to take a hammer to the back of the head of the flesh, you're not playing. You're not in the game because it, just, it doesn't take much of a foothold. That's why Paul says, don't leave anything. Don't leave anything for sin, for Satan, for, to step on, to turn up, to grab up, and to move. Just don't don't say you, you've pushed it back enough. Yeah, we weeded those sections, and we don't have anything. What's the, what's the big deal over here? It, it's a big deal. It doesn't take long. Weeds seed. One foothold leads to this handhold. You can't fool with this stuff, and he's never going to stop coming. Your sinful nature is never going to stop trying to regenerate itself. It's never going to stop pleading for its life. It's never going to stop saying, hey, can we have a ceasefire for a little while? It's never going to stop doing something to stay alive enough to come back and get you another day. And as Owen says, and when it's most quiet, it's most scheming. And the difference between my unweeded garden and our life is that it takes time for me to go weed my garden. But attacking and killing sin is a momentary moment in the heart and mind, in the conscience. It is when that comes in, you say, no. You say, that's not who I am. That's not what I'm for. That's not what I believe. That's not the earthly good I'm here for. That's not what Christ has made me. That's not what someone who's raised with Christ and who will be glorified and whose life is hidden with Christ and God. That's not who I am. No. And you don't need an afternoon to do that. You need a tenth of a second. But you need a very violent internal tenth of a second. When you put some of these things together, you essentially get this spiritual flywheel. This is the last thing. Which is, when you realize something about what has to be done, there's a certain humility that says, I have to do this. I cannot expect to coast. People much better than me implode all the time. And I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do this. That will produce vigilance always looking. And what will also produce is accountability. Because when you realize your two eyes can't see everything, when you realize your level of vigilance is going to fail, you're going to be looking, you'll be looking for ways it's coming in, but other people can see it so much better than you, right? How many friends do you have that are completely delusional about, delusional about their major faults? All of them, Right? But you could tell them if they would listen, but they won't. 
because they're not really vigilant. Because if they were vigilant, they'd realize their two eyes, spiritually speaking, can't see everything. And two people watching is four times as good. And everybody in your life invited to tell you what they fear for your good is a much more impenetrable wall. And from there, what you'll realize when you're being vigilant, you'll realize you're looking for an enemy, and you realize that you're standing in the middle of the field with no fortifications and no weapons, and you realize, wait a second, I can be vigilant, but if I'm not ready to fight when this happens, when this goes down, it's going to make no difference that I was watching. Right? It's going to make no difference. And then that's going to drive you to God to understand who He is and His truth. It's going to drive you to a systematic and a spiritual theology. It's going to drive you to grow in character and in what's called discipleship, to be more like Jesus, because you realize you're going to need fortifications and weapons for when that moment comes. And then you're going to realize that when you study God that you're not all that hot, (laughs) right? Which is going to lead to humility. That humility is going to lead you to vigilance, which is going to lead you back to the pursuit of God and His truth, which is going to lead you back to humility and vigilance. And there's this flywheel And round and round you go, but the rounder and round you go, the more vigilant you become, the more humble you will become. And the deeper your knowledge of God and the more developed your character to fight, the fight will become. You will become stronger. You will become vigorous. And in the words of Owen, your spiritual life will deliver real comfort. Because the vigor the strength and the comfort of your spiritual life will be directly related to the extent to which you daily kill sin. Because you set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. Let's end with a John Owen quote. There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed on, and it will be so while we live in this world. I want you to go away asking yourself this question. Do I know what it's going to take to be who Christ has made me to be so I can be heavenly minded and earthly good? Do I know what it's going to take? Do I know I have to kill sin? Do I know that my enemy is as cunning as I am? Do I know that it requires brutality? And am I, am I ready to fight an intractable conflict? It's not going to end with the next administration. We're never going to pull our troops out. You, it's, nev- it's not going to stop. We're going to fight and fight and fight and fight and never grow battle-weary. We're going to grow. The longer we fight, the stronger we're going to become. I'd really encourage you to to face that. Because if you don't face that, you will live in the flesh. You will, because you won't fight it. And you'll live in it, because it's there. And the Bible says that if you live in it, you'll die. You'll die. And I'm not intensifying that. I'm just repeating it. But if by the Spirit, and we'll talk more about this next week, what that means. If by the Spirit you put to death the works of the flesh, you will live. You will. Let's pray. Father, um, help us to trust you, to trust Christ, to seek to live by the Spirit, 
and to never tire and to increase in our brutality against sin. Not the sins of others, but inside ourselves, the sin that is in us, that it would be killed down to the bottom, that we would throw it off like a useless garment and that we would put on Christ in all his fullness. Help us to have our minds and to seek things above, not the things of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name.